Job, we're going to be doing Job uh, chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, and 30 tonight. Some of them are a little bit shorter, but we're going to stop off at 31, because 31 is Job's last defense. So next week we hear Job's last defense, and then we're introduced to our final character in the book of Job, and he talks for just a few chapters, and he's got some interesting takes, and then starting in Job 38, God shows up, and that's when the book really changes. But here what you have in Job 25 through 30 tonight, you have Bildad's last attack on Job, you have Job's kind of final statements here, and we want to kind of bring this all together. So we have Bildad. Verse 1 of chapter 25, Bildad the Shuite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He, talking about God, makes peace in high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does he light, his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? And we've talked about that before. How can man be righteous before God? How can he be pure who is born of a woman? We know the answer. The answer is found through Jesus Christ. Even if the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? What I want to focus on is verse 6. Man is a maggot and man is a worm. I can handle lots of things in life. Uh, Snakes really don't bother me much. Fascinated by them. Mice don't bother me, that type of stuff. I enjoy that stuff. The boys and I go look for those things. But to this day, I still can't handle maggots. And that is God's great description of us as a maggot. Now, before you think here in verse 6, that's a very unloving statement. I mean, can you imagine if I brought my kids up and said, I'd like you to introduce you to my first maggot. You know, this is Elias. Doesn't sound very loving, does not That we're a maggot, we're a worm. This is the interesting thing about this. You want to know how much God loves us? Go to Psalm 22, please. See, Bildad's kind of right. We are maggots. We are worms. We're nothing. Now, the problem is Bildad never mentions that God loves maggots and worms. So he just stresses this idea of how much God hates us. And this is the problem with the book of Job. I shouldn't say the problem. This is what we see in the book of Job, and we still see the same problem today. You see some of this half-hearted teaching. You'll run into many pastors. They'll tell you that you're maggots and worms. Their whole ministry is putting you down. Yeah, but they don't know this. God loves maggots and worms. And you want to know how I know God loves a maggot and a worm? Look at Psalm 22. This is called a messianic psalm. As you read through this, you will see and hear the words of Jesus. This is a psalm prophecy. Verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, where did we hear that from? Christ on the cross. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, am not silent. This is what Christ was going through on the cross, forsaken by God, as he's taking the sin of these maggots and worms on him. Verse 3. But you are holy. See, that's why Jesus and God the Father lost that connection on the cross. God is holy. Jesus was taking the sin of the world upon him, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you, and you were delivered. They trusted in you, were not ashamed. But I am a worm, and no man a reproach of men and despised by the people. See, Jesus was willing to become a worm for the worms. Now, isn't that fascinating? See, here's the hard part. When we think of Christ coming down in the form of flesh, in the form of man, yeah, I mean, yeah, we understand he was God. Now he became man. We get it, the humble birth beginnings. But we really don't understand the discrepancy between God and man. See, we're man. 
we don't think we're all that bad. We're worms. So the worm needed someone to die for it. Well, God had to become the worm to die for the worms. And that's a beautiful picture that what you see right here. And the rest of the Psalm 22, if you're looking for a deeper study, read the rest of Psalm 22. It's a messianic psalm. You'll see the picture of Christ in it. And it's a beautiful thing. And if you want to go even deeper, take that word worm in Psalm 22, verse 6. And if you want to go and do a Hebrew word study on that word worm, you will be more than fascinated about what that word means because it carries a much deeper meaning than just worm. And we don't have enough time here tonight to get into the study of what that word worm means. So when Bildad says, we're maggots, we're a worm, how could God even care for us? God says, yeah, I kind of love worms. I love them so much that I'll become a worm and come down for them. And Christ's sacrifice, God became the worm to save the worms. And what a beautiful picture that is. Now, Job's response, remember, as we've been going through our study here in Job, the responses get a little more testy, as you can tell by Bildad's response in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 25, a little shorter. They're running out of things to say. And as we mentioned way back in the beginning of our study in Job, one of these verses that we talked about all the time in the book of Proverbs where it talks about how in the multitude of words sin is not lacking. The more we speak, the more we get in trouble. These long, drawn-out conversations and arguments, they just lead to sin and to fighting and arguing Bildad's got nothing to say. We're worms, we're maggots, God can't stand us. Job's response, verses 1 through 4. Well, who are you to say anything? You're not that smart either. I mean, this is what it's becoming. But Job makes a point here. It's kind of interesting. He starts talking about, we're worms, yes, but who is God? Verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He draws a circular horizon on the face of the waters. At the boundary of light and darkness, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. By his hand, pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. How small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job says, we are worms. Who are we even to grasp? Bildad, excuse me, says, we are worms. Job says, who are we to even grasp who God is? I mean, look at verse 14. How We only hear a whisper of God. How can we ever handle the thunder of his power? Think about that. We only get a whisper of God. How could we ever handle the thunder of his power? And to kind of make this point, Job in verses 7 through 13 he has a little science lesson here. Verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Now, here's one of my pet peeves. And I don't get a chance to teach on this pet peeve too much. Because it doesn't pop up a lot in the scriptures. But when it does, I really like to hit it. We have been trained as a society to think back to the beginnings of man. That they were created as, I shouldn't say even created. That man were these dumb beings that communicated in grunts and groans, and they lived in caves. I mean, you know all the stuff. Here's Job speaking thousands of years ago. Guess what? He hangs the earth on nothing. Job didn't believe that there was this big Greek god holding up the earth. Job didn't believe that there was this big tortoise that carried the earth on its back. Job knew that the earth just hung on nothing. See, I think the most intelligent man that possibly may have ever existed, Solomon obviously is right up there, was probably Adam. 
Well, now you say, well, here's the hard part. Aren't we more intelligent now than what we were back then? See, technology covers up our stupidity. I have three-year-olds and five-year-olds that can do stuff on a computer and a tablet that is absolutely amazing. They have no idea what they're doing, but the technology sure makes them look smart. You know, go back to Noah and what he built. Noah, when he built this boat, and I was writing down the references of this, 450 feet long, longer than a football field, 75 feet wide. This building right here is 48 feet, so imagine bigger than this. 45 foot high, that's a four-story building, and he did it without Black & Decker. <laughs> Think about that. The largest wood bo- bo- boat that was ever built was something called the USS Wyoming. I was looking this up. It was smaller than the Ark. It was only 330 feet. It was only 50 feet wide. And you know what happened with that boat? It was so big, it brought so much water, and they had to constantly have pumps down in the bottom of it to pump out the water, and that boat ended up sinking in 1924. The ark, it took a year's abuse on the water. Noah built that. Noah. See, see, here's the thing. These people that lived thousands of years ago, as we look in the Bible times, they understood that the earth hangs on nothing. They understood that water is up in the clouds. They understood that. Now, I'm just asking, if you guys had to write down an eighth grade essay question, of, please explain why the earth is hanging on nothing, could we answer that? Can we answer why these clouds are full of water when a thunderstorm comes? There's potentially tons of liquid water up there and it's going to fall on us, but yet the cloud doesn't fall? This is what Job is saying right here. You know, and the Bible goes on in even more and more detail. Isaiah 40 makes it clear that earth is a circle. They knew that. Jesus talking in Luke 17 talks about his second coming, about how some are going to be taken in day, some are going to be taken in night. Now, you may think that's not a big deal. That kind of is a big deal because that means they understood that the earth rotated. One side of the world had day, one side of the world had night. They understood that. Isaiah 45 makes it clear that this earth is a unique, special creation of God. So when you read this little verse right here of he hangs the earth on nothing, don't skip over that. This is an intelligent being that understands creation and he understands what God is doing and what God has done. And what he's trying to say here back in verse 14, we're only getting a whisper of this people. And he says, guys, we couldn't handle the power of his thunder, of who he really is. Don't get caught up in this mindset of that we are getting more and more intelligent. As like I said, I think technology covers our stupidity. These people years ago, they knew a lot, a lot more than what we give them credit for in many things. So Bill Dead basically starts out and says, we're worms, we're maggots. Job's response, who are you to say anything? God is big. We can't even understand it or grasp it. This is this ongoing argument that's going to keep on going here. We'll take a quick break, though. Any, got any quick questions, comments, or anything before we go on? Ryan. Yeah, I mean, verse 11 mentioned the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. Um, But, you know, that's obviously more of a uh, symbolism that they're talking about there, where Job, I think, makes it pretty clear there. He's talking about the earth hanging on nothing in verse 7. That's the thing is, you know, a lot of times people pick and choose these passages out of the Bible to try to make the Bible sound stupid. Here's the thing about this. 
you know, we need to understand God's word. We need to know that this is wholly inspired and it's true from Genesis to Revelation. But the Bible does a really good job of defending itself. The Bible does a really good job of defending itself. I say this sincerely, and I mean this sincerely. If anybody has ever found a contradiction in the Bible, I want to talk to them. I want to know what they're seeing that I'm not seeing. And anytime someone comes up to me and says, Oh, I got this cousin, I got this friend. They're an atheist, they're an agnostic. They just love to rip apart the Bible. I'm always like, hook me up with them. That'd be like the greatest lunch conversation ever. Let's sit down and tell me everything you've read in this Bible that makes you question the existence of God and rip this Bible apart in front of me because I want to know what you're seeing because I don't see that stuff. I think it's a wonderful conversation. Let's have it. God's word can defend itself. You said you had something else, everybody? Yeah, Ryan? Um, at verse 13, in King James, it says, His hand hath formed the perfect serpent. And I'm wondering, that, that's different than what you read. Yeah, my new, my new King James says, His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So I would have to check that out a little bit to see what the King James is saying versus the New King James. So sometimes those King James, uh, the original Hebrew words, have a couple different meanings there. I'm going to make a quick note of that. Yeah, Marcus. And that's a good way to put, look at it. There's very intelligent being people out there that are, except very intelligent, but they may not have the wisdom of the Lord. There are people that have the wisdom of the Lord, but that might have may not have the intelligence of the world when it comes to that. And there is a very important point there. And I think this is something that God is trying to say here, which we're going to get to in a little bit. And this is actually what he gets to in chapter 28. What is wisdom? What is real wisdom? And that's the point that God is trying to say. Anybody else got anything here before we go on? Okay, so... Job continues now in chapter 27. And what basically comes down to is this, is verse 2, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. See, Job's back to this. God has made me bitter. You know, it's all God's fault. You know, this is obviously the hand that God wants for me in life, and God's out to get me. He has made my soul bitter. And if I remember correctly, this is at least the third, if not the fourth time, that Job has mentioned the word bitter here in the book of Job about what God has done to them. Now, here's the hard part. You run into people, and you run into them a lot, that have convinced themselves that God is out to get them. And I tell you, the more I read, and the more I pray, and study the Bible, the more I realize Just like it says in 1 John, God is love. And as a loving father, he wants what's best for me. And and it's almost like we have this envision of God sitting up in heaven, getting joy out of just making our life miserable. James is having a great day today. Time for a flat tire. Oh, that was fun. I mean, it's almost like he's the kid with the magnifying glass trying to burn up the ants. No, that's not God. In any way whatsoever. But Job has convinced himself that this is God that's making me bitter. So now he goes into this long discourse here for the rest of chapter 27 and says, well, that's what the wicked people need. That's what the wicked people deserve. See, verse 7, may my enemy be like the wicked. Verse 13, this is the portion of a wicked man with God. And he goes on and says, this is what wicked people do. This is what wicked people deserve. See, Job is getting to this point, and it builds up to chapter 31, where Job is so self-righteous that it's hard for him to even think that he possibly could have done anything to deserve this. 
anything to deserve this. And he kind of continues this thought in chapter 28. And he has this great analogy here. He starts on the first few verses of chapter 28. And if you can look here in verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Once again, please note these are intelligent people. So we can get gold. We can get silver. We can get copper. We can get iron. We can build mines. We can dig all this stuff out of the earth. But, verse 12, where can wisdom be found? And where's the place of understanding? See, Job says, I can get any type of material you want. You want gold, I can get it. Copper, I can get it. Iron, I can get it. Silver, I can get it. I can dig a mine to get it. But where can I find wisdom? You know how many times as a pastor, I get contacted where people are facing a big decision in life. Big decision. They tell me what the decision is, and I usually say, that's that's a big decision. Sounds like you need to pray about that. Oh, I will, I will. What do you think I should do? I used to try to answer that. Now my response is, and if you ever call me, please don't think I'm ever being rude, because I I don't mean it rude at all. I'll say, you know what, I, I can't answer that. I don't know what the Lord's leading you to do. See, because I can give you verses that say, say yes. I can give you verses that say, say no. But this is between you and the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I've been walking with the Lord 22 years. It takes a lot of energy to seek the Lord for wisdom. It takes a lot. Proverbs 20, verse 5, if you're a note taker, says that wisdom is like a deep well. And who's going to put the effort in to get there and start pulling that out? We want these quick Fast, easy answers. And this is what I've noticed. And this is something I learned the first year I was a pastor. That if I am forced to make a quick, fast decision, that's not of God. Because God will give me the time to pray, to seek, to fast, and to know. And if somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor, here it is, and we need to know right now. I'll probably say if it's right now, we're probably just going to say no to it. Because that's not enough time to pray and seek the Lord on this. It's a deep well. We need to take some time to seek this and see what the Lord has in store. Now, are you willing to do that? Because you know what that means? Let's just be honest. It means shutting off the TV. It means shutting off the computer. It means spending time in the Word. It means spending time in fasting. It means spending time in prayer. It means sometimes going to, as the Bible says, to your prayer closet and secluding yourself from the world and saying, Lord, I'm just going to spend time with you until we have an answer here. That's a lot of time, energy, and effort. If you're facing big decisions in life, And you're kind of giving God this trite little, Lord, what do you want me to do? Okay, I'll talk to you later. Amen. You're never going to get an answer. And then you're going to make decisions that aren't based on faith. They're going to be decisions based on fear or what if. You're going to make decisions based on limited knowledge. Or worse than anything, you're going to base decisions on what you think is a good idea. Man, we have to seek it. Look what Job says here, verse 13. Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Man does not know the value of wisdom. They don't. We really undermine this value of, I'm just going to spend time with the Lord in prayer and whatever. I mean, seriously, this is what we do. And we are the body of Christ. We should know better. We know the answers. I should probably pray about this. I should fast. I should seek the Lord. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to ask all my Christian brothers and sisters what they think I should do. And then I'm going to take all these answers and I'm going to kind of think about everything they said. And, oh, man, we don't know the value of just spending time with the Lord. And we make big decisions, who to marry, where to live, houses to buy, jobs to change, cars to do this. And we make these decisions without really understanding the value of wisdom. Verse 14, the deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. They don't have wisdom. 
Verse 15, it cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, and precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Are you getting the point? You can't put a value on knowing what God wants you to do in your life. We do this homeschooling academy on Monday mornings. And the last year, uh, they asked me to teach chapel a couple of times. And so what I did is I brought up uh, Layden and Reagan. Uh, Layden's my uh, fourth child. He's five. And Reagan, Reagan Winsinger, neighbor, same thing. They're about two months apart in age. They're both five. So I brought them up. And this was in front of the whole homeschooling class. And I said, okay, what I've done here is in the sanctuary, I've taken two envelopes, and in those envelopes I've put money. And I've hid them. Reagan and Layden, if you find the envelopes, you get to keep the money. They went nuts. Ran all over, looked through everything. I had the big kids helping them search for stuff. I mean, you would have thought it was the pep rally of all pep rallies. They found the envelopes. They got to keep the money. It was the greatest thing in the world. The teaching point was, okay, now you went crazy for money. Now what about this? Because the Bible says that this is actually more valuable than whatever you could find in that envelope. Are we willing to do that? I mean, seriously, can you imagine going crazy for the scriptures? I mean, what would you do? And I know this sounds creepy. Sorry, it just came to mind. So I come into your house every night. Once again, it's really creepy. I understand that. So I come into your house every night, and I hide money in your house every night. Okay, it's really creepy. Every morning you'd get up and say, I wonder where it's at. And you're like looking over everything. What happened if every morning we get up and say, dude, I got time to get in God's word this morning. This is amazing. What is he going to say today in John 10? Boy, I wonder what Proverbs is going to say today. We don't, do we? See, and this is what Job is trying to say right here. Verse 13, one more time. Man does not know its value. Man does not know the value of God's word. We've reached a point a lot of times in society with teachings or just meditating on the scriptures or devotions. It's like one little passage and a whole lot of what people think. Man, just get into the word and understand the blessings of it. Because it will bless you more than you can ever imagine. And that's what Job is trying to say here. It will bless you. Now we'll take a quick break here. Anybody got quick questions, comments about anything here before we go on? Alrighty. Now, Job's doing really good. And once again, if Job could just stop, promise we have verse 1 of chapter 29. Job further continued his discourse and said, we're back to whiny Job. See what you have here now. Whiny Job is, it can be summed up in verse 18. And I'm actually going to read this out of the New Living Translation. Whiny Job and uh, excuse me, Job 29 is back to this, Woe is me, my life is awful. He just got done doing this great teaching on wisdom and how great God is. See, this is what it says in the New Living Translation. Job 29, 18. I thought, surely I will die surrounded by my family after a long, good life. See, isn't that Christianity? Lord, I want to be used by you mightily more than I, you can, I can ever imagine but I, I just don't want to suffer. Lord, I want to be a missionary to the upper middle class. Lord, I want to die in my sleep at a nice age. You know, before I start getting really old and things start falling apart, but just a nice age, I fall asleep. This is what Job is saying right here. I thought I was going to die. My new King James says this, I shall die in my nest. 
I got this nice little bed, this nice little nest. And he goes on, and if you read the rest of chapter 29, look at verse 2. Oh, that I were in the months past. See, God was watching over me, verse 2. I walked in his light, verse 3. And everybody loved me. God loved me, verse 5. My children loved me. And I went out into the city, verse 7. I took my seat in the open square. Oh, young men saw me and hid. And the aged arose and stood. He was respected. He was loved. See, he's building up to this great defense. If I have not earned this, I have not deserved this, I am bitter. And I just want to talk about how good it used to be in the past. Verse 21, men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. See, no one would interrupt Job because he was Job. Verse 22, after my words, they did not speak again, and my speech settled on them as due. See, Job has this great chapter 29, oh, the good old days. Verse 1 of chapter 30. But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. So men whose dads I wouldn't even let be with the dogs are now mocking me. Verse 9, and now I am their taunting song. Not even worse, excuse me, you should say worse than that. Verse 9, I am also their byword. See, at least when you're mocked and taunted, you're thought about. But when you're just kind of like, no one even thinks about you anymore. That's what Job says. This is what my life is is now. Verse 16, my soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of my affliction take hold of me. My bones are pierced in me at night, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire, and I become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. See, now look. See, Job is building up to chapter 31 here. Look at this. Verse 20, I cry out to you, but God, you ignore me. I mean, you can almost hear this anger building up in this voice. I stand up and you regard me. You've become cruel to me. God, you are cruel to me. The strength of your hand, you oppose me. It's, he talked earlier in the book of Job about every time I get up, you just knock me down again, God. See, Job is bitter. He's getting angry. Verse 22, you lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success. Now, that verse really hit me. You spoil my success. Some of your translation says you dissolve. It literally means melt. What Job is saying is everything I have built and created, my success, you have melted it, God. Verse 23, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. See, Job is really reaching a point here. Of this is it. This is done. I'm done with this. Verse 26. But when I looked for good, evil came to me. When I waited for light, then came darkness. My heart is in turmoil. It cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I am a brother of jackals, a companion of ostriches. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. My harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. And then what happens in chapter 31, which we'll get to next week, this is basically where Job says, I don't deserve this. See, he's reached a point of such bitterness where, I mean, haven't we all been in that place before? Verse 19, he's cast me into the mire. Verse 20, I cry out, but you do not answer me. God's cruel to me, verse 21. You spoil my success. 
And God, verse 23, you just want to kill me. Boy, we've all been in that spot, haven't we? And if you've never been in that spot, amen. But I'm sure you're going to run into somebody who's been in that spot. So what do you tell them? I mean, seriously, what would you tell Job at this point? I mean, his world is literally falling apart. And it's all God's fault. As I mentioned to you before, here with Job, we're always going to end on a high note. Because it's really easy to walk away and say, wow. i got two psalms I want to take you to as we close. The first one, can you go to Psalm 40? Psalm 40. You know, Job said back there in chapter 30, verse 19, He has cast me into the mire. God threw me into the mire. Well, that's what Job thought. What does Psalm 40 really tell us? Verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard me cry. And he also brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. See, Job convinced himself that God threw him in the miry clay. And the psalmist really says, no, God pulls you out of the miry clay, Job. You know what miry clay is? If you've ever been in an old pond, and you jump down and you go down and touch the bottom of the pond, and as you hit that bottom of the pond, you hit something you feel is solid, and then your feet just start sinking, right? Because there's years of just, well, you can figure out, there's years of stuff that is built up on the bottom of that pond. And as your feet goes into it, you're not hitting a hard surface. You're not hitting hard clay. You're hitting this miry clay, and you just start to sink in it. Job says, you, God, put me in the miry clay. And God says, no, actually, Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2, I want to pull you out of the miry clay. If you ever run into somebody who has convinced themselves that God is out to get them and he is cruel, he is mean, he has spoiled my success, take them to Psalm 40 and say, hey, how about you wait patiently for the Lord? How about you incline your ear to him? Because he wants to pull you on the miry clay, set your feet upon a rock, establish your steps. Verse 3, he wants to put a new song in your mouth, that new song of praise. Because many will see and fear and many will trust in the Lord. Verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. That's what God wants to do. Now, one more psalm here. Go back to Psalm 34, please. Psalm 34. See, we made, Job made it very clear. Once again, back in Job chapter 30. I cry out to you, but you do not answer. I stand up and you regard me. Well, let's talk about that one a little bit too. Job convinced himself that God didn't care. Verse 1, Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. I don't know. That's a, that's a refrigerator verse right there. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and deliver them. Remember that greatest story? Um, I think it was with Elijah, right? Remember the king sent soldiers up to come capture Elijah? And Elijah's servant was completely freaking out. And Elijah says, God, just open his eyes. And then they looked up and they saw surrounding Elijah was the fiery chariots of the armies of God. You know, we don't see that. 
There's a whole spiritual heavenly realm that we do not see. But God tells me in verse 7, they're encamped around us. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints. There's no one to those who fear Him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may say good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. Job says, you do not hear me, God. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me. He heard me. Verse 6, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him. Verse 15, his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Here's the key, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Just stop right there. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Somehow we've gotten this concept of Christianity as I'm born again, I'm saved, I'm walking with Jesus Christ, I will not face afflictions. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings as we're going through 2 Timothy, you know that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So right now, if you are facing many afflictions, guess what? You're righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Well, we're in a Job moment. We convince ourselves that God is cruel to me. God is bitter to me. He does not hear me. He has forsaken me. Okay, we've got to get the flip side of that. The flip side is Psalm 40. God pulls me out of the miry clay. The flip side is Psalm 34. At least four times... God hears me and he answers. Yes, I have many afflictions. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's what we need to focus on. Job has convinced himself in the darkness of trials and tribulations that God is out to get him. The truth is, no, God loves him. And you're going to find that out in Job 38. When God shows up on the scene. So we're almost there, Job 31. we got one chapter next week of Job's great defense, his final thoughts. We're introduced to our last character in Job 32 that talks for a few chapters. And it all builds up to Job 38 when God says, Enough is enough. It's time for me to show up. And I tell you, that's when it gets really good. Anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything? Yeah, Ryan. Oh, where mine says, I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. King James is kind of interesting sometimes on some of those translations. And we'll get to the subject of dragons here a little bit when we get to Leviathan, etc. If I remember correctly, also King James talks about unicorns as well, too. So if you'd like to have a fun little study, get your King James out and do a word search for unicorns. And you can talk about unicorns there as well in King James. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good to be here tonight. Help us, Lord. If there's someone going through a Job moment, show them that you want to pull them out of the miry clay. You hear, you listen, you care. And Lord, as we run into people who are in that miry clay, help us to love them in you and to point them towards you because you do care. Thank you, Lord. As these small groups start up here in the next few weeks, Lord, it's all for you. 
I just pray that uh, connections can be made, faith could be encouraged, you could be just shown, and people could witness for you and just love you and all that we say and do. And Lord, once again, as we're just praying about how do we take that next step to be that practical Christianity in service, reveal that to us as a church, because we want to do that, Lord. We don't want to just sit here. We want to go. We want to send and be different in all that we say and do. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Hey, we'll close up with prayer up here. If anybody has anything they want to pray about, come forward. We'll circle up. We'll pray. If not, you guys have a good evening and God bless. And hopefully we'll catch you next week.